Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are good. You are holy. You are supremely righteous. And that's what you demand of your people, is a perfect righteousness. A righteousness that goes far beyond the the scribes and the Pharisees. But Lord, in and of ourselves, we are not able to do that. So we rest upon your grace. We rest upon um, the presence of the Holy Spirit molding us and making us into your image. Father, may that be so in our lives. Father, as I share your word this morning, I pray, Lord, that uh, through your Holy Spirit, we would uh, receive it, Lord, and that we would be changed and transformed through it. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So um, turn with me in your Bibles um, to Matthew 5, uh, verses 17 to 20. We left off in a uh, transitional section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus laid down several very important principles that will have a significant effect on everything that follows for the remainder of this chapter. And as we've looked at this section, we've intentionally moved very, very slowly, one verse at a time. And the reason that we've done that is because each verse truly addresses a different topic. There's four verses there. Each one is a completely different topic. They're all interrelated, surely. Um, But each topic is worthy of its own discussion, which we have done. Verse 17 focused on the fulfillment of the law. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. We discussed the many different ways that Jesus fulfilled the law through his life, his death, his resurrection. He was born under the law, therefore subject to it. He fulfilled the law through his sacrificial death on the cross. He fulfilled the Old Testament types and shadows, and ultimately every word of Scripture points to him. In verse 18, Jesus doubled down by addressing the permanence of the law. The permanence of the law. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Not a single letter or the smallest seraph on a letter will pass away until God's purposes are fulfilled. God's word is sure and it will stand forever. Verse 19 addressed our attitude towards the law. Our attitudes towards the law. Do we obey God's law as it's written? Or do we set aside certain commands as irrelevant or unimportant? Jesus said, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There are eternal consequences for how we do and teach the law of God. Those who are faithful will be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. This morning, we come to verse 20. And for lack of a better way to describe it, and to be honest, I'm not thrilled with it, I'll call this the doing of the law. The doing of the law. That said, I want to be very careful here. Right, Our righteousness, our righteousness, could never, ever earn our salvation, nor buy our way into the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus says in verse 20, For I tell you, 
unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Is Jesus teaching works righteousness? Is he saying there's a minimum bar and the scribes and the Pharisees are beneath that line? This should create all kinds of questions in our mind. What is righteousness? Where does it come from? How does our righteousness relate to our salvation, which Jesus describes as entering the kingdom of heaven? So what is righteousness? What is righteousness? The dictionary defines it as being, as being morally right or justifiable. The behavior, the behavior would be characterized by socially accepted standards of morality, justice, virtue, and uprightness. And unfortunately, we know that, humanly speaking, social standards change over time and by location. The standard was for what was right when I was born in 1961 looked very different in 1979 when I graduated from high school. And it looks very different today in 2022. It's a sliding subjective scale where there is no true standard. And that leads to moral relativism, where there is no universal or absolute set of moral principles to live by. Decisions are made on a case-by-case basis, not on a standard but according to one, what one feels is right in their own experience. Spent all morning talking about that in our discipleship class, actually. There's no black or white, only an endless spectrum of gray. The book of Judges concludes with a description of this mindset. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 21-25. So rightness is just determined by the individual or, by, or at least by the socially accepted norms of a group. But, but the Bible defines righteousness very differently. The Bible's standard of human righteousness is God's own perfection in every attribute, including His character or nature, His conscience, His attitudes, his conduct, his actions, and his commands, his words. God's law, God's laws describe his own character and are the plumb line by which he measures human righteousness. He measures human righteousness, righteousness by himself. Righteousness is based upon God's standard because he is the ultimate lawgiver. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Isaiah 33, verse 22. And we know that we fall far short. We know this by our experience. We know this from Scripture. We fall far short of His perfect standard. Scripture is clear. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.10. There is none who is morally right. Our very nature is in rebellion to God. The King James says that all our righteousness are as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. 
So even our most feeble attempt, our own feeble attempts at true godliness and righteousness fall way short of His perfect standard and do not bring Him glory. Even our best attempts. That's why Jesus concludes this section of the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll probably get to in about six months. Um, and this chapter, end of this chapter, with the words, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. And that's given as a command, not as a suggestion, not as a recommendation. It's given as a command. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The character and the nature of God Himself is the standard by which we should live as children of God. That is the true measuring stick. In the original language, the word that's used for righteousness in verse 20 refers to the quality of being in accordance with God's law. The quality of being in accordance with God's law. Obedience. Obedience. And that's how it connects to what we've already studied. It connects to verses 17 through 19. Verse 17, Jesus came to fulfill the law. We know that he did that through his actions, his attitudes, his words. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life in accordance with God's word, in accordance with the scriptures, which qualified him to be the perfect sacrifice for sin on the cross. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. So by his life, his death, and his resurrection, Christ fulfilled all righteousness. God's law is the standard for righteousness and will remain so until, quote, all is accomplished, verse 18. In other words, unlike the world, the children of God have a righteous standard by which to live, one that perfectly reflects the character and the nature of the Father. And that standard shall remain unchanged until all of God's purposes are fulfilled. The standard does not, cannot, will not change, unlike the culture. Verse 19, because God's word does not change and is unchangeable, it should be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. Every commandment, from the greatest to what Jesus called in verse 19, the least of these, should be obeyed and taught to others. The one who does that will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So God's standard, God's standard of righteousness is perfection. And in and of ourselves, because of our fallen nature, that isn't possible. That isn't possible. But with God, all things are possible. Matthew 19, 26. By the way, that's not taken out of context. The question was, how does one enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven? Right? Matthew 19, 26. And we're going to spend some of our time this morning focusing our attention on how he does that. But first, let's take a look at the Pharisees. Jesus said, for I tell you, 
unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20. Who were the scribes and the Pharisees? The scribes were the professional students and teachers of the law. They were the experts in the law, scholars who spent their time learning more and more about the Old Testament scriptures and teaching it to others. The Pharisees were part of a reformist movement within Judaism, which was devoted to the meticulous practice of the law with special emphasis on ritual purity, on tithing, and Sabbath-keeping, Sabbath observance. The terms scribe and Pharisee are actually two different categories. Okay, You've got the students of law teachers, and then you have this subgroup that's teaching very specific things on the keeping of the law. They're two different categories, but in practice, the goals and the lifestyle of the two would overlap with many professional scribes also being members of the Pharisaic movement. And certainly Jesus describes them together here and elsewhere in Scripture. So we're going to take them as one unit, but they're separate categories, actually. Jesus had some pretty strong words for the Pharisees. And we'll share some of that this morning. He had some very strong words for the Pharisees. So I don't want to let them off the hook. But on the surface... They would have been perceived, that's a key word, perceived. They would have been perceived by most as righteous. That's why Jesus' words here are so striking. They're so striking. The scribes and the Pharisees would have been in agreement with most of what Jesus had to say in verses 18 and 19. For them, every detail of the law was precious. And the goal of their legal traditions was not to supplant the Old Testament as a rule of life. Rather, it was to guide people in observing its demands, the demands of the law, in more and more meticulous detail. They were staunch defenders of the law as a practical guide for holy living, and people respected them for it. Okay? They were respected for it. They were seen as the model for how one was to follow the law of God. The Pharisees were almost universally praised in Jesus' day, by the, by the Jews, certainly not by um, Rome, um, praised in Jesus' day and were regarded as outstanding examples of people who live by the law of God. So to speak in terms of a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees would seem to be an impossible, even ridiculous ideal. As long as righteousness is understood in terms of literal obedience to rules and regulations, it'd be hard to find anyone who attempted more rigorously and more consistently than the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the models. Again, that's why Jesus' words are so surprising here. Again, this is early in the book. This is his first mention of the Pharisees. I think of the legal traditions of the Pharisees as a buffer that they placed around the law of God. Kind of a ring or a buffer around the law of God. If the law says, don't do X, their traditions would place multiple barriers in the way to protect people from breaking the law. In theory, that makes some degree of sense, 
right? That makes some degree of sense. Don't we do something uh, similar in our own life in dealing with temptations, right? We know that certain situations or people or places can be a breeding ground for sin. By removing ourselves from those situations, we create a buffer that can help us avoid temptation in our lives. At one level, that makes some sense. But legalism, whether it be by the Pharisees or by the church today, is a false gospel. Legalism by the Pharisees or by the church today is a false gospel. Legalistic regulations about dancing, consumption of alcohol, dress, etc., do little more than cause resentment and rebellion. That isn't to say that counsel on those things isn't necessary. It is. But legalistic adherence to rules and regulations for their own sake doesn't produce a heart that's devoted to God and seeks to be obedient to Him in all things. It doesn't do it. It's a false gospel. The rules and the regulations of the Pharisees may have been well-intentioned, but they completely missed the mark. Righteousness is not simply obeying the letter of the law. Jesus was calling for more. Jesus was calling his disciples to a deeper, more radical holiness than that of the Pharisees. Pharisee, the, the, the religion of the Pharisees had a tendency to soften the law's demands by focusing only on the external obedience. We can check off a box, we're done. God wants more. True righteousness goes far beyond adherence to the rules of the Pharisees, which in effect do nothing more than move the line. Remember, I called it a buffer. That's all they're doing is moving the line. Jesus is calling for a righteousness that not only requires radical obedience, but a righteousness that envelopes the intentions of our hearts, our attitudes, our thoughts, our minds. That's the overriding point of Jesus' words through the remainder of this chapter. And will be the primary theme of the next six messages that you're going to hear from me, including next week. It's more. It's deeper. That's what God is calling us to. Jesus had some harsh words for the Pharisees, most notably in Matthew 23. And while he certainly criticized what they do, more often than not, what he criticized were the attitudes and the intentions that led to their behavior. Let me read just a few of the verses that Jesus speaks in chapter 23. He says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, that's another example where Jesus is putting them together as a group. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Um, Matthew 23, verses 1 to 5. Further on in that chapter, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy 
and faithfulness. Hear this part. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Wasn't telling them to stop tithing. He was telling them there are things that are more important that you're lost, completely lost focus on. Matthew 23, verses, verse 23. Finally, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Verses 27 and 28. Now the righteousness that the Pharisees displayed that's a key word too, was external. It was a righteousness of their own that was based on worldly perception, not on true biblical righteousness. You know, Jesus' metaphor in verses 27 and 28 is very striking. He calls them hypocrites and compares them to whitewashed tombs that appear beautiful on the outside. You know, many will go down to Spring Grove Cemetery and walk through the beauty of the gardens. They read the inscriptions on the gravestones and monuments. Everything looks so pristine and beautiful, and it is. Yet underneath all of that beauty are bodies that have long decayed and bones that have dried. That's today. When the Lord, uh, imagine what that would have looked like in Jesus' day when the Lord first spoke these words at the Sermon on the Mount. You know, when Lazarus died and Jesus commanded them to take away the stone, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. John eleven thirty nine. That phrase is translated in the King James as, Lord, by this time he stinketh. All right? That's the way that Jesus describes the Pharisees. Basically, on the inside, they are rotting corpses. Rotting corpses. In his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, um, D. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says... And this is a little extended, but very worth our while. We must realize that this is one of the most serious and important matters we can ever consider together. There is a real and terrible possibility of deluding and fooling ourselves. The Pharisees and the scribes were denounced by our Lord as being hypocrites. Yes, but they were unconscious hypocrites. They did not realize it. They really thought all was well. You cannot read your Bible without constantly being reminded of that terrible danger. There is the possibility of our relying upon the wrong thing, of resting upon things that appertain to true worship rather than being in the position of true worship. There's a difference. And let me me remind you tenderly in passing that it is something of which those of us who not only claim to be evangelical, but are proud to call ourselves such, 
may very easily be guilty. How many of us are like that? How many of us are self-deluded? We say all the right things. We do all the right things. We conform to certain Christian expectations. But when we dig underneath, we scratch underneath the surface, what do we actually see? Do we see a heart that is truly aligned with God and His righteousness? Or are we like the Pharisees who give the appearance of righteousness, but inwardly are filled with dead man's bones, which Jesus describes as hypocrisy and lawlessness? Be sure. My prayer for each one of us is that we be sure. Scripture commands us to examine ourselves. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. 2 Corinthians 13.5 And the test is whether or not Christ is in you. The hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. And if He is, if He is, then His righteousness will, all caps in my notes, will be made manifest in your life. If He's not, if He's not, then the best you can do in the flesh is give the appearance of righteousness by following rules regulations, trying to conform to expectations. That is not salvation. That is not salvation. So what were the Pharisees guilty of? First, their religion was entirely external and formal instead of being a religion of the heart. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7, B. Second, they were more concerned with the ceremonial, the tithing, the mint and dill and cumin, than the moral, the weightier matters. Third, their man-made rules and regulations provided for certain dispensations and exceptions that they granted to one another, which actually violated the law they pretended to keep. One example of that is in Matthew 15, where Jesus says, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Speaking to the Pharisees. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Matthew 15, 3-9. Number four. 
Their focus was on themselves and on their charade of righteousness. They sought not to glorify God, but to glorify themselves. Luke 18, we read um, Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It reads, two men went up into the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, which, by the way, was not commanded. Fasting once a year was commanded. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke eighteen ten to 14. That is such an easy trap for us to fall into. Number five, finally, the religion of the Pharisees showed a complete absence of the spirit described in the Beatitudes. If you recall the the three messages that I preached at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount when we first started this journey together, I called the Beatitudes the characteristics of the blessed. The characteristics of the blessed. In other words, the Beatitudes describe the characteristics of one who is truly in Christ. Okay? Okay. They are poor in spirit. They mourn over their sin. They're meek and humble. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful and pure in heart. They're peacemakers, and they will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And mere outward conformity to man-made rules and regulations does not fall flow from a heart that's truly in Christ and filled with His Spirit. So to the scribes and to the Pharisees, Jesus says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. They're clearly outside of the kingdom. To us, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus teaching? Is he teaching works righteousness? No. No. Is he teaching that in order for us to enter the kingdom of heaven, we need to beat the scribes and the Pharisees at their own game? Of course not. Of course not. Jesus shows that the righteousness of the law that the righteousness the law demands involves an internal conformity to the spirit of the law rather than just external compliance to the letter of the law. It goes deeper. It goes deeper. The righteousness that Christ commands works from the inside out. From the inside out. It, It comes from a changed heart. It produces changed hearts and new motivations. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Romans 6, 
verse 17. And that kind of righteousness cannot be summoned by the will of man. That kind of righteousness cannot be summoned by the will of man. We cannot, in and of ourselves, achieve the perfect righteousness that is required by the law. Scripture teaches us repeatedly, repeatedly, that sinners are capable of nothing but a flawed and imperfect righteousness. Verse 20 sets the standard for righteousness, but it does not tell us where it is to come from or how it may be achieved. And since Scripture interprets Scripture, we must look outside of that text for our answer. If that kind of righteousness is going to manifest, manifest itself in our lives, it must come from outside of ourselves. It must. Theologians refer to an alien righteousness. Okay? It's a term that we don't talk about a lot, but that's a, a good one. Alien righteousness. A righteousness that by definition is outside of ourselves. It's alien to us. Okay? The only righteousness that by which sinners may be justified is the perfect righteousness of Christ. The righteousness that is imputed to us, to, to us who believe in Him. Okay? Genesis 15.6 Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Okay? Genesis 15.6. Romans 4.5, the Apostle Paul relates the same account of Abraham. Okay? So that's the context. He's talking about Abraham. And he extended, extends that to each one of us. And says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee, prior to coming to faith, said this, after listing off all his long list of impressive accomplishments, he said, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Hear this part. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Philippians 3, 8 and 9. So for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, there is a great exchange. A great exchange. At the moment of salvation, the moment of salvation our sins are forgiven, the full righteousness of the risen Christ is imputed or credited to us. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Him, hear this, we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 So by His sacrifice on the cross, He took on the full penalty of sin that we deserved. He literally became sin for us. Beyond that, His full righteousness, which He achieved by living a perfectly sinless life, even to the point where he was obedient unto death, is imputed or credited to us. And when God the Father looks upon us, what he clearly sees is the full righteousness of his Son. 
Albert, Albert Moeller has said, and I'm going to interject some definitions in the middle of it, the culture says you have an alien problem. Okay? Something caused outside of ourselves. To be solved by an inner solution. Okay? Alien problem to be solved by an inner solution, which would be our wills or our own self-determination. The gospel says you have an inner problem. That would be sin. You have an inner problem that will be solved by an alien righteousness. God's righteousness. Okay? So true righteousness, a righteousness that God accepts, comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. It comes from outside of ourselves. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. can't happen. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This is the key verse. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 3, 20-26. It goes even deeper than that. The righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us, credited to us, marked to our account, also produces actual righteousness righteousness in us. Okay? The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, but that also produces righteousness in us. Why? Why is that so? Because at salvation, you become a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's something different here. 2 Corinthians 5.17. You're transformed from the inside out and are increasingly obedient from the heart, we've already done this verse, you who were once a slave of sin, under the bondage of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slave of righteousness. Romans 6, 17 and 18. So not only we become obedient from the heart, and we desire to serve God literally as a slave, That bondage that we had of sin, we're freed from that, and we are set free to serve Him. How awesome is that? The Holy Spirit indwells you and produces the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.11. In that sense, in that sense, the actual conduct of Jesus' followers does in fact exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Okay? Our actual content, con- conduct, once transformed, does exceed 
the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Still, even that righteousness does not merit our salvation. Okay? That actual righteousness is not the righteousness by which we are saved. The imputed righteousness is. So rather, the fruit of the righteousness that's shown through the life of believer, that new conduct, is the evidence. It's the evidence of the alien righteousness that's been credited to to us through faith in Jesus. The ground of our salvation is that very righteousness of Christ. Not what, how we act, perform, show. That's, that's all important and it's commanded. But even that is not the grounds for our salvation. The righteousness of Christ is. May our righteousness not be that of the scribes and the Pharisees. May our faith be much more than merely checking off box, boxes on a list of do's and don'ts. May the Holy Spirit have His way in us, molding us, making us, transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. May we increasingly become obedient from the heart. May we lean securely on His righteousness for our salvation as we do that. All the while seeking to be more and more like Him in perfect holiness. Within the context of the Sermon on the Mount, and we will one day get there, Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 6, 33. May that be our singular focus. To seek the righteousness that comes only from Jesus Christ. To place our faith and our trust in Him alone for our salvation, and for Him to transform us from the inside out, producing in us an actual righteousness that glorifies Him in all things. Let's pray. Father, for for each and every one of us, My prayer is that we would be sure. Lord, that we wouldn't delude ourselves, fool ourselves, but that we would dig deep and ask the serious questions of you in prayer and the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit to know that we truly and securely have your life dwelling within us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for each one that we would never let that question go unanswered. And then once answered, Lord, I pray that through your Holy Spirit you would have your way in us. Lord, that you would mold us and make us and transform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. That in everything we say and everything we do and everything we think, Lord, that we would truly, truly glorify your name. And Lord, when it's about us, and it will be, Lord, I pray that we would repent of that sin 
and turn our focus back to you, resting solely upon your righteousness for our salvation. Lord, be with us this morning as we um, celebrate the Dobbs decision, the overturning of Roe versus Wade. As I've shared several times from the pulpit, I, say, I, I really believe that is an important thing in our, in our church today, in the culture today, that we ce- celebrate what you have done while also looking forward, Lord, to ways that uh, we can continue to work, continue to pray, and continue to um, preserve life in the womb. Lord, may you be glorified in it all. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Please rise for the benediction. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. Don't go in his peace, stay here.